This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Lisa Cho on September 14, 2006. The Yosemite by John Muir. Chapter 6a. The Forest Trees in General. For the use of the ever-increasing number of Yosemite visitors who make extensive excursions into the mountains beyond the valley, a sketch of the forest trees in general will probably be found useful. The different species are arranged in zones and sections, which brings the forest as a whole within the comprehension of every observer. These species are always found as controlled by the climates of different elevations, by soil, and by the comparative strength of each species in taking and holding possession of the ground, and so appreciable are these relations, the traveler need never be at a loss in determining within a few hundred feet his elevation above sea level by the trees alone. For, notwithstanding some of the species range upward for several thousand feet and all pass one another more or less, Yet even those species possessing the greatest vertical range are available in measuring the elevation, inasmuch as they take on new forms corresponding with variations in altitude. Entering the lower fringe of the forest, composed of Douglas oaks and Sabine pines, the trees grow so far apart that not one-twentieth of the surface of the ground is in shade at noon. After advancing fifteen or twenty miles toward Yosemite, and making an ascent of from two to three thousand feet, you reach the lower margin of the main pine belt, composed of great sugar pine, yellow pine, incense cedar, and sequoia. Next, you come to the magnificent silver fir belt, and lastly to the upper pine belt, which sweep up to the feet of the summit peaks in a dwarfed fringe, to a height of from ten to twelve thousand feet. That this general order of distribution depends on climate as affected by height above the sea is seen at once, but there are other harmonies that become manifest only after observation and study. One of the most interesting of these is the arrangement of the forest in long curving bands, braided together into lace-like patterns in some places and outspread in charming variety. The key to these striking arrangements is a system of ancient glaciers. Where they flowed, the trees followed, tracing their courses along the sides of canyons, over ridges, and high plateaus. The cedar of Lebanon, said Sir Joseph Hooker, occurs upon one of the moraines of an ancient glacier. All the forests of the Sierra are growing upon moraines, but moraines vanish like the glaciers that make them. Every storm that falls upon them wastes them carrying away their decaying, disintegrating material into new formations, until they are no longer recognizable without tracing their transitional forms down the range from those still in process of formation in some places through those that are more and more ancient and more obscured by vegetation and all kinds of post-glacial weathering. It appears, therefore, that the Sierra forests indicate the extent and positions of ancient moraines as well as they do belts of climate. One will have no difficulty in knowing the nut pine, Pinus sabiniana, for it is the first conifer met in ascending the range from the west, springing up here and there among Douglas oaks and thickets of Cyanothus and Manzanita its extreme upper limit being about four thousand feet above the sea its lower about from five hundred to eight hundred feet 
It is remarkable for its loose, airy, wide-branching habit and thin gray foliage. Full-grown specimens are from 40 to 50 feet in height and from 2 to 3 feet in diameter. The trunk usually divides into three or four main branches about 15 or 20 feet from the ground that, after bearing away from one another, shoot straight up and form separate summits. Their slender, grayish needles are from 8 to 12 inches long, and inclined to droop, contrasting with the rigid, dark-colored trunk and branches. No other tree of my acquaintance, so substantial in its body, has foliage so thin and pervious to the light. The cones are from 5 to 8 inches long, and about as large in thickness. Rich chocolate brown in color, and protected by strong, down-curving nooks, which terminate the scales. Nevertheless, the little Douglas squirrel can open them. Indians climb the trees like bears and beat off the cones or recklessly cut off the more fruitful branches with hatchets, while the squaws gather and roast them until the scales open sufficiently to allow the hard-shell seeds to be beaten out. The curious little Pinus attenuata is found at an elevation of from 1,500 to 3,000 feet, growing in close groves and belts. It is exceedingly slender and graceful, although trees that chance to stand alone send out very long, curved branches, making a striking contrast to the ordinary grove form. The foliage is of the same peculiar gray-green color as that of the nut pine, and is worn about as loosely, so that the body of the tree is scarcely obscured by it. At the age of seven or eight years, it begins to bear cones and whorls on the main axis, and as they never fall off, the trunk is soon picturesquely dotted with them. Branches also soon become fruitful. The average size of the tree is about 30 or 40 feet in height and 12 to 14 inches in diameter. The cones are about four inches long and covered with a sort of varnish and gum, rendering them impervious to moisture. No observer can fail to notice the admirable adaptation of this curious pine to the fire-swept regions where alone it is found. After a running fire has scorched and killed it, the cones open and the ground beneath it is then sown broadcast with all the seeds ripened during its whole life. Then up spring a crowd of bright, hopeful seedlings, giving beauty for ashes in lavish abundance. The Sugar Pine, King of Pine Trees Of all the world's 80 or 90 species of pine trees, the sugar pine, Pinus limbertiana, is king, surpassing all others, not merely in size, but in lordly beauty and majesty. In the Yosemite region, it grows at an elevation of from 3,000 to 7,000 feet above the sea, and attains most perfect development at a height of about 5,000 feet. The largest specimens are commonly about 220 feet high and from 6 to 8 feet in diameter, 4 feet from the ground, though some grand old patriarch may be met here and there that has enjoyed 6 or 8 centuries of storms and attained a thickness of 10 or even 12 feet, still sweet and fresh in every fiber. The trunk is a remarkably smooth, round, delicately tapered shaft, straight and regular as if turned in a lathe mostly without limbs, purplish-brown in color, and usually enlivened with tufts of a yellow lichen. 
Toward the head of this magnificent column, long branches sweep gracefully outward and downward, sometimes forming a palm-like crown, but far more impressive than any palm crown I ever beheld. The needles are about three inches long in fascicles of five, and arranged in rather close tassels at the ends of slender branchlets that clothe the long, outsweeping limbs. How well they sing in the wind, and how strikingly harmonious an effect is made by the long cylindrical cones depending loosely from the ends of the long branches. The cones are about 15 to 18 inches long and 3 in diameter. Green, shaded with dark purple on their sunward sides. They are ripe in September and October of the second year from the flower. Then, the flat, thin scales open and the seeds take a wing, but the empty cones become still more beautiful and effective as decorations, for their diameter is nearly doubled by the spreading of the scales, and their color changes to yellowish-brown while they remain, swinging on the tree all the following winter and summer, and continue effectively beautiful even on the ground many years after they fall. The wood is deliciously fragrant, fine in grain and texture, and creamy yellow, as if formed of condensed sunbeams. The sugar from which the common name is derived is, I think, the best of sweets. It exudes from the heartwood where wounds have been made by forest fires or the axe, and forms irregular, crisp, candy-like kernels of considerable size, something like clusters of resin beads. When fresh, it is white. But because most of the wounds on which it is found have been made by fire, the sap is stained and the hardened sugar becomes brown. Indians are fond of it, but on account of its laxative properties, only small quantities may be eaten. No tree lover will ever forget his first meeting with the sugar pine. In most pine trees there is the sameness of expression which to most people is apt to become monotonous, for the typical spiral form of the conifers, however beautiful, affords little scope for appreciable individual character. The sugar pine is as free from conventionalities as the most picturesque oaks. No two are alike, and though they toss out their immense arms in what might seem extravagant gestures, they never lose their expression of serene majesty. They are the priests of pines and seem ever to be addressing the surrounding forest. The yellow pine is found growing with them on warm hillsides and the silver fir on cool northern slopes, but, noble as these are, the sugar pine is easily king and spreads his arms above them in blessing while they rock and wave in sign of recognition. The main branches are sometimes forty feet long, yet persistently simple, seldom dividing at all, excepting near the end, but anything like a bare cable appearance is prevented by the small, tasseled branchlets that extend all around them, and when these superb limbs sweep out symmetrically on all sides, a crown sixty or seventy feet wide is formed, which, gracefully poised on the summit of the noble shaft, is a glorious object. Commonly, however, there is a preponderance of limbs toward the east, away from the direction of the prevailing winds. Although so unconventional when full-grown, the sugar pine is a remarkably proper tree in youth, a strict follower of coniferous fashions, slim, erect, with leafy branches kept exactly in place, 
each tapering in outline and terminating in a spiry point. The successive forms between the cautious neatness of youth and the bold freedom of maturity offer a delightful study. At the age of fifty or sixty years, the shy, fashionable form begins to be broken up. Specialized branches push out and bend with the great cones, giving individual character that becomes more marked from year to year. Its most constant companion is the yellow pine. The Douglas spruce, Libocedrus, Sequoia, and the silver fir are also more or less associated with it, but on many deep-soiled mountainsides at an elevation of about 5,000 feet above the sea, it forms the bulk of the forest, filling every swell and hollow and down-plunging ravine. The majestic crowns, approaching each other in bold curves, make a glorious canopy through which the tempered sunbeams pour, silvering the needles and gilding the massive bowls and the flowery, park-like ground into a scene of enchantment. On the most sunny slopes, the white-flowered, fragrant chemibatia is spread like a carpet, brightened during early summer with the crimson sarcodes, the wild rose, and innumerable violets and gelias. Not even in the shadiest nooks will you find any rank, untidy weeds or unwholesome darkness. In the north sides of ridges, the bowls are more slender and the ground is mostly occupied by an underbrush of hazel, ceanothus, and flowering dogwood, but not so densely as to prevent the traveler from sauntering where he will, while the crowning branches are never impenetrable to the rays of the sun and never so interblended as to lose their individuality. End of chapter 6a